Hey, welcome to church. Um, I apologize if you've uh, spent uh, time bored to death in dead churches, but this isn't one of them. Uh, and we don't apologize for passion. And if you think this is a lot, just wait until you reach heaven. <clears throat> so uh, we're uh, excited, as you can tell, to be a part of what God is doing here in the earth. There's never been a better time for you to be alive. And um, I just honestly believe that God is as good as Scripture says he is, and he can do everything Scripture says he can do. And when you dare yourself to believe those two simple realities, everything about your faith comes alive. God is as good as Scripture says he is, and he can do what Scripture says he can do. That means as a believer, by faith, I'm connected in relationship to a God in whom impossible does not even exist as a word he uses. It's not even in his lexicon. It's not even in his dictionary. It's not even a word that would make sense to his sovereign entity because nothing is too hard for the God that we serve. Do you know that God doesn't even break a sweat when he works miracles? Right? Like if you wear a watch that monitors your heart rate, any type of like anxiety producing situation you're in, your heart rate goes up and your watch beeps at you and lets you know, you're gonna have a heart attack, be careful. You gotta make time to breathe. God's heart rate doesn't even go up when the nations rage because he holds them in his hand and laughs. Nothing is beyond the scope of this God that we serve. And so when we're praying for people to receive miracles and for life to come into dead bodies, it's not like we're hoping God does it if he's in a good mood. No, we know these things emanate from his character. I don't have to ask if God is in the mood to heal people. Neither did the woman with the issue of blood. She just had enough faith to grab a hold of the hem of his garment. And he says, virtue came out. Virtue came out not because Christ made a decision, watch, but because the woman with the issue of blood made a decision. Jesus wasn't holding a healing crusade. He was just walking. But there was a woman with faith who grabbed a hold of the hem of his garment. And so on Sunday mornings, I like to envision Jesus walking through this sanctuary. And I don't need to ask him, Jesus, are you in the mood for revival? Are you in the mood for healing, restoration, deliverance, signs, wonders, miracles, hope? Are you in the mood for these things? No, he's walking by. And all who by faith grab a hold of who he is can expect that virtue or benefit would flow out of him to us. And so we honestly believe in a miracle-working God. We don't apologize uh, for it. And I, I think we have made the God that we serve so safe and so quiet and so dignified that we miss out on his passionate, burning heart that desires for a people to be caught up in his glory. And so for you and, and, and for me, we, we are pointed in the direction of outpouring. There's never been a better time to be alive. God is at work in the nations of the earth. He's specifically, I believe, at work in the Northwest. And I think it just proves that, number one, God is in control. But number two, he has a sense of humor. Uh, God could have chosen any time, but it, for some reason, he's chosen this time. And he's pouring out in goodness and in grace. He's drawing people unto himself. Uh, and uh, I'm telling you, right now, we are scratching the surface. We are scratching the surface of the greater work that he's about to do. So just, just hang on, hold in there. Uh, and, 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 and together, we're going to see the goodness of God in the land of the living. This morning, we're beginning a sermon series called Shift, S-H-I-F-T, Happens. Shift 
happens. And so just be clear when you're inviting people to church, just make sure you enunciate, you pronounce all the syllables and all the letters in that word. Shift uh, happens. We know there's a lot of other stuff that happens in life too, but, uh, but supernatural shift is what we're going to lean into for the next four weeks. I don't normally do this, but let me just give you a snapshot of what I'm going to teach on for the next three months. For the next four weeks, I'm going to talk about shift happens. The four weeks following that, I'm going to preach four sermons uh, uh, on the return of Christ. And then in September, I'm going to preach on sexual identity and gender. Uh, I'm telling you, you're not going to want to miss this season here at Pursuit. And just let me give you a key. Anytime I feel pressure from the culture not to talk about an issue, it automatically becomes a sermon series. And so we're going to teach the whole council of scripture and help people come under the lordship of Christ Jesus. Jesus is not just your savior. He is your Lord. He commands your destiny. You have given up the right to self-identify. You have given up the right to make your own proclamations about your life. You were bought with a price. You are not the creator. You are the creation. You are not the potter. You are the clay. You are not God. You are you. And God works in our life in incredible ways. And we ought to just give him the credit and the permission to be everything scripture says he is. And so over the next number of weeks, we'll go teach in this direction. And uh, I, I'm hoping to give you some language. And, and some biblical tools uh, for the days uh, that are ahead. This morning, we're going to be in the book of Matthew. Matthew uh, is a tax collector. Sometimes he goes by the name of Levi. Uh, and of course, he writes the first book of the, Bible, uh, of the New Testament, which, which records the birth, uh, ministry, death, and resurrection of uh, this one that we know is Jesus Christ. Uh, Matthew is one of the original um, 12 disciples. He is most likely probably despised by the people in his community because he works for essentially the first century equivalent of the IRS. He's a tax collector. And the way that you feel about tax collectors today is the way that they felt about tax collectors back then. And they were known for their usury. They were known for ripping people off. They were known for twisting the legal code to try to get as much money out of you as possible. I don't know about you, but I think that we have a moral obligation to give the least amount of money to the IRS as humanly possible. I'm not going to fund the destruction of our nation and call it somehow, you know, charitable work. No, I, I got a legal obligation, a moral obligation to pay the least amount of tax to our backwards government. But anyways, in the first century... Jesus works with this, this guy named Matthew, and he's a tax collector. Here's, what I here's what's so intriguing and interesting about the life and the ministry of Christ, is that he takes people like Matthew who are tax collectors, and people like James and John and Peter who are zealots, but probably on the other end of the political spectrum, and he sits them both down at his table. One of the first critiques of the ministry of Christ that comes from the Pharisees and Sadducees is that he eats with tax collectors. They were so despised in that culture that if you were a religious person, you wouldn't even have them over for dinner. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees and he says, I came as a physician, not for the healthy, but for the sick. And I just love how compelling the message of Christ is that he takes people on polar opposite ends of the spectrum and he seats them at his table. And by the time that they followed him for three and a half years, their lives are so utterly transformed that they're not even known by their former identities. Do you find it interesting how often Jesus changes people's names? 
Now, he changes their names before he changes their character. He says, he, he, he says over these, this is what you were known as, but now I call you this. And that's how Jesus works with you and I. He calls you righteous, even though you ain't. He calls you generous, even though you aren't. He calls you kind, even though you're not. He calls you healthy, even though you're far from it. He calls you functional, even though you're dysfunctional. Jesus gives you a new name, and then by his spirit helps you grow into that new identity. And so Jesus is taking these disciples. He says, I'm going to give you a new name. And as a byproduct of following me, you're going to grow up into your new identity. You are going to become what I've already declared you to be. And in the book of Matthew, uh, Matthew records the longest sermon that Jesus ever preaches. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And it goes from Matthew 5 to 6 to 7. And in these three chapters, it kind of captures the ethic of Christ imparted to the world around him. This is where Jesus teaches on the Lord's Prayer and on the Beatitudes and talks about how upside down the value system of the kingdom is. In order to be rich, you got to be poor. In order to be first, you got to be last, so on and so forth. And in Matthew 6, there are four statements that Jesus makes that I think represent supernatural keys that God is giving his church in this season to see us shift into breakthrough. I, I don't know about you, but if you've ever thrown your back out and had enough courage to go to a chiropractor where they really work on your spine and it, it always sounds like they're breaking your back and it always sounds like things are popping, you got bones moving that you didn't even know exist and, 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 and you go into the chiropractor and they align your vertebrae and all of a sudden you leave that place and you go, I didn't, I didn't know I had that range of motion. I didn't know I could stand up this tall. I didn't know what it was like to live pain-free in this environment. I believe that that type of thing is happening in the spiritual as God is giving us keys to shift out of dysfunction into function, to shift out of waiting for breakthrough into experiencing breakthrough. And so over the next number of weeks, I'm going to give you keys, supernatural keys that represent opportunities for the body of Christ to shift into the divine plan and purpose that God has for us in this hour. This is why one of the most crucial messages in the New Testament is he who has an ear, let him hear, and he who has eyes, let him see. There is a God who is interested in doing work on the earth. He's interested in doing work in your life, in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your workplace. And I think so often we live uh, 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 saved lives, but ignorant of the season that we're in. And that's why the Bible pays special attention to a group of people in the Old Testament called the sons of Issachar, for they knew the times and seasons of their anointing. And so for us, over the next number of weeks, I'm going to give you some keys. And I think these keys will remind you that even big doors tend to swing on small hinges. They're operated by seeming in, seemingly insignificant keys. But as, as, as doors are opened to what God has for us next in this season, I think we're going to see some supernatural things happen in this environment. In Matthew 6, uh, uh, starting in, in, in verse 1, the Bible says this, Be careful, warning, be careful, not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Why? Because if you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. 
So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received the reward in full. Let me again draw you to what Jesus says here in verse two. So when you give, watch, not if you give, but when you give. This is the first key that I believe that we see from Matthew 6, that Jesus is giving to people who have ears to hear. When you give, it shifts you under an open window of resource and blessing that God pours out by himself. Here's the expectation. Followers of Jesus are consistent, generous givers. Hear me when I say this. Please don't get offended. I'll give when I feel led is the doctrine of people who never give. <clears throat> See, as soon as the pastors start talking about money, all of a sudden everybody get defensive. They go from a Pentecostal church to a Baptist church real quick. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Because there's been so much bad teaching in the past because there's been abuse in the past, because we've seen things misused in the past, all of a sudden it gives us a hesitancy when somebody starts talking about it in the present. But can I tell you, if we didn't talk about any scripture that's ever been abused by any pastor or teacher over the last 2000 years of historic Christian orthodoxy, we wouldn't have a whole lot left to preach. Just about Everything in this Bible has been preached bad by somebody who has a pulpit to communicate. And if we allow the abuses of others to keep us silent on things that matter, all we're doing is a disservice to the people around us. And so we ought to allow the Bible to speak true, to speak clear, and to be unafraid to address issues that make other people nervous. Do you know that there's really healthy teaching on money? There's really healthy teaching on generosity. There's really healthy teaching on offering. There's really healthy teaching on resource. But I think oftentimes we are given to either end of the communicative spectrum, either people who are just so greasy, you feel like, I don't even know if you're born again, or other people who just go, well, I'm never gonna talk about it. And if you give or if you don't give, that's none of my business. Here's the reality. God, who is the author of all resource, is inviting you to participate with him in the supernatural spiritual act of generosity. And when you do, it positions your life for blessing. It's not karma. It's not what comes around, goes around. No, it's the law of sowing and reaping. As we sow, as we water the seed that God has given us in the good soil of the ground in which we plant it, God brings abundance, 30, 60, even 100 fold. David said it this way, I was young and now I'm old, but God's people are never forsaken and the righteous never go hungry. It doesn't mean that you won't walk through seasons where you need more than you've got now, but what it does mean mean is this, at the end of the day, my God will supply everything I'm in need of. So let me challenge you out of the book of Malachi and in chapter three, where the prophet says this, will a mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And God responds in tithe and an offering for you are under a curse. Yes, even the whole nation, because you are robbing me, but bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, there will not even be enough room for it. 
I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Friend, generosity isn't just about the blessing of you as an individual. It's about the blessing of the nation that you're a part of. See, generosity is like a pebble thrown in water. It creates a ripple effect across the pond. And when you trust God with the little that you have, he trusts you with the abundance that he has. As we signal to God that we can be trusted as stewards of limited resource, it positions us under an open heaven for unlimited abundance. Giving is a key that opens a floodgate. It's not only a key that opens, it's a key that closes. Watch what Malachi says, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. My giving doesn't just open doors for new resource, it closes doors on the devourer from coming to steal my resource. You won't know what your giving has prevented until you reach heaven. And God shows you the snapshot of a life well lived. See, while everybody else was under the curse, you got a blessing. While the financial systems of the nation collapsed, somehow the church advanced. While everybody else was losing their minds, somehow you found a diamond in the rough. While everybody else had built a house on sand, yours was on the rock. And when the storms came, your foundation was solidified. How could it be that in a time of economic uncertainty that the people of God rose up? Well, when you plant your seed, God closes the door on the devourer and opens the door of abundance. Now you might go, well, that just sounds name it and claim it. I heard that on TV. No, I read it in scripture. No, it's right there for us. And I'm sorry if there's been bad teaching in the past, but don't allow the injury of bad teaching to cause you to walk in disobedience. Well, I was hurt in church. I guess I can't ever go back. No, that's not a decision you get to make. Because scripture says, do not forsake the gathering of God's people. Well, I saw somebody who stole my money and spent it on a Lamborghini, so I can't ever trust again. So now you're in disobedience because man has moved you away from following God. So for us, we operate in supernatural resource. Biblical generosity looks simply like this. There's no strings attached because we understand who we're giving to. I think, and I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist this morning, but I do need some new conspiracies because all the ones I believed have come true. But anyways, <laughs> I think it's likely in our lifetime, just with the way the political climate is going, that we'll see the churches in our nation lose what is called their nonprofit tax status. So hear my heart. You got to make a decision now. My generosity is not connected to a tax break. My obedience is not connected to a handout from the federal government. I'm going to be a person who walks in generosity and in resource and in wealth, regardless of what the government says about the tax status of the church I attend. For us, as we begin to think about resource... One of the things that often comes to our mind is the other end of the spectrum, poverty. And I want to challenge you this morning. Poverty is not how much you make at the end of the year. Poverty is not whether or not you make minimum wage and you're struggling to get by. Poverty is a mindset that causes you to look at what you have and think this thought, there will never be enough. That's poverty. 
Poverty is not, I made 38,000 this year. There are people who make 380,000 a year and they're still in poverty because the way they think about their resource is it's never enough. So I've got to hoard. I've got to be a workaholic. I've got to grind the rest of my life because there will never be enough. Let me change your mindset this morning. See, a mindset of supernatural resource is representative of the dialogue that Moses has with the burning bush. As the father speaks to him and he says, I'm sending you back to Egypt to get my people out of captivity. And Moses goes, well, how are they going to believe me? And God says to Moses, what's in your hand? Moses says, it's an ordinary staff. And God says, no, it's a tool for the supernatural. See, resource looks at what's in your hand, not as just a wooden staff or a dollar or a salary or a pay increase, but a supernatural tool for the furthering of the kingdom. Now watch. Here's why your job is of eternal significance, regardless of whether you work in a church. Because when I take what I earn and invest it into the kingdom of God, I'm making a decision for eternity. Well, I just work at a coffee shop. Yeah, but when you give unto the Lord, your coffee shop job is making an eternal investment in souls for the harvest. See, it gives purpose to your work because vocation is an avenue of mission. And some people feel like, well, I'm not really serving the Lord unless I work in a church. No, God hasn't called you to full-time ministry. He's called you to full-time Christianity, which means whatever you set your hand forth to do, do it with excellence. Because even the money that you receive from your work has supernatural significance when you view it as a seed to be planted in soil. Matthew 6 is not if I give, it's when I give. It's when I give. It's the expectation. It's the presupposition in this verse that gets me the most. When you give, don't do it in a way to be seen by others, but instead be rewarded by the Father. That's the first key. The second key is this. Watch verse five. And when you pray, not if you pray, not if you get around to it, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. You know, the older I get, the shorter my prayers have become. Mostly they look like this. Help me. Help me. Right? I think when you're younger in the faith, you're like, you think to yourself, like, God is convinced the more words I use. I think the older you get, the more you recognize he knows my request before I even pray them. So here's my request, help me. And then when he teaches his disciples to pray, it's a relatively short prayer. And then he criticizes those who babble on and on with repetitive words that make no sense. It's almost like Jesus is saying, it is not the length of your prayer, but the sincerity of your prayer that accomplishes much. 
And that's why in James 5, it says, the effective prayer of a righteous person availeth much, which means when I pray, I am releasing a supernatural word in the earth that does not return void. And even if I don't see it answered here, it doesn't mean that it is not already answered there. And that's why hope is not connected to exterior circumstances, but instead to an interior reality. Friend, if every prayer you prayed wasn't going to be answered in your generation, but would be answered in the next generation, but you got the best seat in the house to view it from the cloud of witnesses, it would still be worth it to pray. Because why? We're standing on the shoulders of people who prayed for stuff and never saw it. But we're so addicted to outcome. We're so addicted to signaling our virtue to people around us. We're so addicted to the validation of people in our culture that if we don't get it overnight, we feel like a failure. But I don't want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side of eternity, which means even when I don't see it, I'm still going to pray. No, we're still going to pray. We're going to keep on praying. We're going to keep on praying. And if I don't see it tomorrow, I'm going to keep on praying. And I'm going to keep on knocking. And I'm going to keep on asking and keep on seeking, believing that one day this door is going to be opened unto me. You are sitting in a church that is the result of young men and young women who got together to dare themselves to believe that God wasn't done with the Northwest. It was birthed in prayer. And if you always knew what the answer would look like when you pray, you would never pray for it. God, I'll do anything. He says, really? You sure? God, I just want to be used by you. Are you sure? You ought to be careful to pray as you pray because God might surprise you and answer it in such a way that you go, I wouldn't have asked for it if I knew it was going to look like this. And that's why it's so important that we pray by faith. Because faith says, I don't know how it's going to look, but I'm going to trust you in the process. I'm going to believe that you're good even when life isn't. I'm going to choose you even when I don't understand. Jesus doesn't say if you pray. He says when you pray. When you give and when you pray. Now, that might seem not like a whole lot of revelation for you this morning, but I'm telling you, friend, there are simple keys that unlock supernatural abundance. The church is looking for better methods. And yet God is just looking for simple men and simple women who will believe him at his word. It's like the, the Christian church growth book industry is like this multi, multi-million dollar industry every year. Everybody's looking for the newest and the latest and the greatest. And look, I want to learn and grow. And I certainly don't think that we're the only thing around and everybody has to do stuff like us, but can I tell you the best tips for supernatural advancement come from this book? And it's really simple and oftentimes it's staring us right in the face. But because oftentimes in life we're looking for this Gnostic knowledge and we're looking for this weird abstract revelation, we're looking for these weird formulas and we're putting together all these kind of conspiratorial spiritual theories in order to get God to do stuff. And here in Matthew 6, in the longest recorded sermon Jesus ever preaches, which by the way was only three chapters, he's telling people, these are the keys that shift, that shift you into breakthrough when you give. Well, I'll give when I have more. No, you won't. Generosity is never about how much you have. It's always about the attitude of the heart in which you operate. If you don't give when you make minimum wage, you won't give when you make a million bucks a year, friend. Just let me tell you. When you discipline the attitude of your spirit to function as a giver, when you discipline the attitude of your spirit to function as a prayer, 
all of a sudden what you begin to realize is that your life begins to unlock and begins to open up and you, you begin to see God as he actually is, not just as culture paints him. And, and all of a sudden you, you, you begin to see things that you've been striving for and contending for and believing for. And all of a sudden in a season of suddenlies, it just happens and you go, man, what's shifted in my life? No, you've attached yourself to some keys. Jesus corrects a cultural perspective. Watch, it doesn't need to be seen or announced in order for it to be effective. See, the Pharisees dealt with the same thing in their culture that we deal with in our culture. The need for their virtue to be affirmed by people who watched. No, my virtue isn't for sale. And I don't need to be validated by a culture that openly hates God. When we virtue signal, it's more about insulating our insecurities than it is our desire to do what is right. How do we judge the success of our prayers? Is it when our circumstance changes or is it when we change? Because prayer is more about changing your heart than it is about changing God's. Let me give you the third key this morning. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Not if people sin, but when they sin. Watch. Offended is an event. Offense is a spirit. You can be offended without adopting a spiritual identity of offense in your life. Just like I can be hurt without becoming a victim. I can be sick without adopting a spirit of infirmity. I can walk through life without allowing that designation to paint my identity going forward. Now, Jesus is speaking to his followers, and he doesn't say if people tick you off. He doesn't say if people sin against you. He doesn't say if somebody does you wrong. He doesn't say if somebody hurts you. It says when they sin against you. If you forgive, the Father will also forgive you. Do you know that when you withhold forgiveness from somebody else, it prevents you from receiving the necessary grace and mercy you need in your life to develop through your dysfunction? Yeah. And life becomes a lot easier when you learn to accept the apology you never received. I don't need to wait for you to ask for forgiveness for me to forgive you and move on. But I think sometimes through bad teaching on forgiveness, we're scared of what it actually is because it's been misidentified. Let me correct a narrative this morning. Forgiveness is not permission for that person to come back into my life. Forgiveness is not an excuse to live without boundaries. Forgiveness is not an affirmation of someone else's bad behavior. Forgiveness is me making a choice that I can't afford to live life under the bondage of what's been done to me. And it's possible to love people at a distance, but it's not possible to be a follower of Christ and walk in unforgiveness. No, see, forgiveness is not, it's okay. Forgiveness is, I'm gonna be okay because I'm receiving help from a healer. And even if you never ask it, I'm still gonna grant it because I can't afford to allow baggage to keep me in an old season when God's trying to shift me into a new season. He don't say if they sin, when they sin. This isn't if I let you down, it's when I let you down. 
This isn't if I get it wrong, it's when I get it wrong. It's not if your spouse irritates you, it's when your spouse irritates you. It's not if you want to strangle your kids, it's when you want to strangle your kids. It's not if your neighbor ticks you off, it's when your neighbor ticks you off. You got to make a choice. I'm not going to build a camp around my offense. I'm not going to build an altar to what's wrong. I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of my faith. See, we've got to make a choice. Because God's given us some supernatural keys. I think sometimes as a pastor, people think I have access to secret knowledge that doesn't exist in the community. <laughs> man, how did it work, pastor? How did you, man, what was the... And I wish I could sound more intelligent than I actually am. <laughs> but Matthew 6 is just really basic. It's so basic that most people miss it. It's so basic that people don't think that it's actually a supernatural key to unlock something in your life. But can I tell you, generosity is not natural, it's supernatural. Forgiveness is not natural, it's supernatural. Prayer is not natural, it's supernatural. Man, these are things that war against the flesh. These are things that are an enemy of God's kingdom. These are things that don't always make sense in the natural paradigm, but they make sense in the spiritual paradigm. I don't wake up in the morning and think to myself, I am so excited to pray, and I'm so excited to get to church and give, and I'm so excited to worship, and I'm so excited to forgive. No, because it wars against my flesh. But when I choose obedience over comfort, my life develops. Well, I just want to be comfortable. You're in the wrong church. In fact, you're in the wrong religion. No, because God's invited you into development. And, and friend, development is costly. Oh, it's so costly. Following this Jesus, just let me be really clear. This costs you everything. I'm not inviting you to add Jesus to your already convoluted worldview. I'm not asking you to entertain the idea of God by showing up to church when you feel guilty. The cost for following Jesus is laying down your life, your prerogative, your rights, picking up your cross and pursuing him. And sometimes in an effort to get more hands at the end of a service, we have undersold people on the significance of following Jesus. No, friend, this will cost you everything. It will war against your flesh. You will feel like I am dying because in fact you are dying to what is old and being raised to new life. Friend, this is the opportunity of the ages. It really is. It's not just when you give. It's not just when you pray. It's not just when people insult you. But Jesus says this, watch. When you fast... Verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show that they are fasting. Now, truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. Now, I, I generally fast uh, between all meals, you know, and so that's kind of, that's kind of how I do it. Uh, 
You know, what about, what about spiritual gifts is the ability to finish a 40-day fast in about four hours. And so that, you know, I just... But, but hear me, in all seriousness, in a lot of ways, fasting is a lost art in the church. You know why? We're too busy listening to sermons on how to make all of our dreams come true that we've missed out on picking up our cross and following Christ. I ain't trying to be religious. I'm not trying to give you some magic formula. If you'll fast on Tuesday, you'll have breakthrough on Wednesday. I'm just saying Jesus outlined some ingredients in Matthew 6. And some people spend their whole life reading the Sermon on the Mount and they still can't see it. I don't know how it works. I just know it does work. When you make a decision for a season or for a meal or, or for a moment, to put aside what you need in the natural to pursue what you need in the spiritual. There's just something that shifts in your life. And I figure if it was good enough for Jesus, it, it, it probably gonna be good enough for us. I know that after he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, he went into the wilderness 40 days and fasted. Now I won't survive 40 days. I, I don't have a lot to lose at this point. However, I do know that when I will just come into obedience to some of the simple things that scripture communicates, there are things that are happening in the unseen atmosphere that I am unaware of. When you pray, when you give, when you fast, when people insult and you make a choice to forgive, these things operate as keys to the kingdom that unlock ancient doors. Let me end in this verse. This comes from Matthew chapter 16. Jesus says this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I will give you the keys. Friend, these are keys that cause supernatural shift in your life. And as our lives come into the obedience of following Jesus, not just as my Savior, but as my Lord, things begin to change in and around me. Come on, would you stand as we close this morning?